Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team. He is worthy. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our, our new study in this book. If you're using one of the Bibles here, uh, turn to page 960. Or if you're using an app, whether you're here or on, online, welcome, by the way. Uh, look up 1 Timothy chapter 1. Maybe a strange question, but uh, would we need speed limits if everybody was committed to driving safely? Probably not. Uh, in 2016, Priscilla and I got to go to Germany for a couple of weeks to visit two different families we know there. And so we uh, landed in Munich and rented a car and for the next couple of weeks drove around to see the people and see the things that we wanted to see in Germany. That driving included a couple hundred miles on the somewhat well-known Autobahn, which is an expressway in Germany known for the fact that there are no speed limits except in certain restricted areas, but some areas you can drive legally as fast as you want to. It's kind of weird, kind of fun, but uh, kind of uh, weird to have that freedom I realized a couple things, though, right away, and one is you really want to stay in the right lane because if someone's doing 100 or so, they come up real fast on your, on your left side. The other thing I realized about myself is that I found myself basically driving as fast or maybe slightly faster than I would have on, on an expressway kind of in the middle of nowhere USA. Just kind of was my my comfort zone. So it was unusual to have this freedom, and I kind of enjoyed trying out a faster speed, which I will not share online. (laughs) But pretty much I drove the same as other places. If everyone was committed to driving safely, we probably wouldn't need speed limits, but we have them in the USA because we have lawbreakers. And so we have speed limits and and officers and tickets and courts, jails if necessary, seeking to keep us safe. Today our passage shows us that laws are for lawbreakers. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the etc. sins that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me, Paul says. So Paul is referring to the law, the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul is writing to Timothy, the younger man that he has mentored in ministry, and as we learned a couple weeks ago in verse 3, he has now entrusted the leadership of the church in Ephesus. That's where this letter landed with the man, Timothy, there in Ephesus. 
And he was uh, reminding them in verses 4 through 7, reminding him, uh, Timothy, warning him about these wannabe teachers of the law. They pretended to be experts in the Old Testament scripture, and, but it seems they were having like their own little Bible studies where they were actually using the Old Testament law to launch their own opinions, which was actually distracting people from biblical truth. And so he says, that's all worthless. But in, in bringing up the law and these teachers, so-called teachers of the law, Paul didn't want to be misunderstood that he was somehow against the law or disparaging God's law. That was their scripture. I mean, this is, this is New Testament being written at this time. So their scriptures were the Old Testament, and Paul at all, was not at all against the Old Testament scripture. He was just saying, it's good, but frankly, it doesn't apply like it used to. Because Paul is now writing in the New Testament age, the age of grace, after Jesus came, died, rose, ascended, the churches are being established, so things are different now. Jesus said it would be, uh, starting with himself, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And to understand what Jesus said, I think we need to realize there is some, distinguish, some, some distinguishing we need to do between ceremonial and sacrificial laws of the Old Testament and the ethical or moral laws. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. Uh, he re- fulfilled the requirements that those laws were meant to illustrate. When you go through Leviticus and you see exactly how the priests were supposed to present each offering and what offering you're supposed to bring and how clean you have to be and what the purification was, all these things indicated to people God is holy. And so when you worship God, when you think of approaching God, you need to have a pure, holy heart. So it made that point. But the details of those ceremonial laws are no longer required because Jesus fulfilled them. His sinlessness fulfilled them. He also fulfilled the sacrificial laws, the issue that that animals had to be killed, representing the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God that required wrath to be poured out upon sin. But Jesus fulfilled those laws because he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so no longer was any sacrifice ever necessary. That's the New Testament book of Hebrews. Jesus fulfilled those. The ethical or moral laws, however, really continued on. If you think of the uh, example of the Ten Commandments and the fact that Jesus himself not only kept the Ten Commandments, but really they still express God's standards to sinful humanity. Nine of the Ten Old Testament uh, commands of the ten, nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. Everyone except keep the Sabbath because uh, now we typically worship on the first day of the week, not the sixth day, the Sabbath day. But essentially, God's holy nature is still being proclaimed by the Ten Commandments. So, what does he say then? What does he mean when he says, We know the law is good, verse 8, if one uses it properly? It's a matter of to whom do you apply it, because the next line says, a wrong application. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous. Law is not made for godly people who 
are made new. The term righteous here is actually the same term that Paul would use in other letters to describe the word justified. The fact that if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. Yes, we still do sin. We still do unrighteous things. But something incredibly happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your eternal record is cleared. And so you are positionally righteous, or by status, you are now righteous if you have put your faith in Christ. And so Paul makes this clear in Romans 3 when he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, the way you got a status of righteous is not by being or becoming or trying harder to be righteous. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments doesn't make you righteous, and the fact is, nobody does keep the Ten Commandments. I keep hearing people claim that they're trying, they think they qualify for heaven because they're trying to keep the Ten Commandments, but really they never lie and they never covet some of their neighbor's stuff. So that won't do it. Uh, Going to church won't do it. Uh, Giving money to people doesn't do it. So If that doesn't make you righteous, if the law didn't accomplish that, what was the law for? And he says very clearly, it's so that we would become conscious of our sin. The very fact that we are exposed as being unable to keep the law. That is the issue. So the law would say things like, don't have other gods, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't envy. And people go, I can't keep all of that. Exactly. And that's why there has to be a sacrifice for sin. That's why we have to discover that God is gracious towards those who trust in his sacrifice for sin. But what the law actually did is made you conscious of sin, like a speed limit sign. Uh, Those of you who travel here in Osaka County know that if you take Highway LL from, from Port Washington up to Belgium, there is a 35 mile an hour speed limit sign that comes way too early. Can we just vote on that? It comes, it comes way too early. And, 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 and I, I know it does because I know a person who recently had a nice man in a uniform remind this person that there was a 35 mile an hour sign there. What if the only way you were allowed to drive in Wisconsin is if you had a perfect driving record? And some of you are starting to think, oh, I have a perfect driving record. But I don't even mean that you don't get caught. I mean, what if you, what if you had, to, had a GPS that was sending a signal and that the moment you went 36 and a 35, your driving privileges were out? No one would be driving. Because no one qualifies as a perfect driver. And that is the point of the law. No one qualifies for heaven. No one. And God's laws expose us as guilty. So if we keep reading in this passage, we find out what solves our our problem and meets our need. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Wait a minute. The righteousness of God comes apart from the law, to which the law and the prophets were testifying, saying, you need this, you need this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
So, so we, we see our situation and the law just exposed our need for the good news that, that there is a righteousness from God available as a gift. It's given to those who believe. To believe means to put your trust in something else than yourself. So to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, who paid for our sin, that's where Paul is going with this. So the question you need to ask yourself here is, are you in verse 9? The law is not made for the righteous. Are you in verse 22 of the passage we're looking at on the screen? This righteousness is given by faith to those who believe. That's the most important question for you. So in heaven, we are declared righteous and don't need the law to fix our eternal problem. In heaven, we are declared righteous if we have placed our faith in Christ. But here we are on earth, and those of us who have believed in Christ, we still sin. So how do we grow in righteous? And to the degree this is part of his thought, how do we grow in righteousness? Do we need more you know, rules to help encourage us to be more righteous? Having more rules won't make us want to obey them. <laughs> because it has to be something internal that will cause us to grow in righteousness. It was odd, like I said, driving on the Autobahn and realizing I could drive as fast as I wanted to. But one thing that helped me internally is that I was sitting right beside my grandchildren's grandmother. I just couldn't endanger her or us. And so it has to be something that is an internal protection and that is what we have been given spiritually to grow in righteousness in fact god himself has come to dwell inside of us in the person of the holy spirit and so it's the holy spirit that enables us to grow in righteousness so that we don't need the law that's why we verse nine, eight is saying that or nine is saying the law is not made for the righteous because we have the Holy Spirit who is producing righteousness. So I say, Paul said to the Galatians, walk, in this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. It's a, it's a continual, daily, step-by-step step realizing that God's power dwells within me so I don't have to do what my sinful nature tells me to do. Two verses later, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So if the Holy Spirit is leading you into purity and rightness and, and, and ethical, uh, proper uh, decisions, then, then you don't need a rule or a law or a government to enforce that. In fact, a few verses later, we discover the Spirit produces that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, self-control. And against, against such things, there is no law. You can't, you can't legislate those things. The Spirit only can produce the things of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit's love, you won't do anything that endangers others. 
If you have the Spirit's love, you won't steal and cause someone else loss. We get the idea. We don't need the law. We will grow in God-likeness. And, and we will grow in godliness in a way that far surpasses anything that rules can do. So it's sad when, when Christians or Christian groups uh, develop like a second set of rules beyond Scripture to say, uh, so do this and do this and do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that. Because that won't make anyone righteous. So if the law is not for the righteous, who is it for? Verse 9, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. That's the first part of the list. The, uh, the list kind of breaks down to two sections. In the first section, uh, this list describes an attitude of sinfulness towards God. And then the second set is uh, relational sins, you could say. Killing fathers, mothers, murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars, and perjurers. That's what the law is for. Uh, in fact, do you realize that God has created us in his image and therefore we all actually have an internal law that guides us, guides all humanity around the globe? Paul was making that point to the Romans when he said, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, Scripture. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. So you've noticed that the people who have nothing to do with Scripture have a strong sense of right and wrong. Your atheist neighbor perhaps. Wouldn't say it's a scriptural thing, but if you drive your four-wheel drive across their flower bed, it's wrong. In fact, our missionaries that have gone to places where there is no scripture, no knowledge of the biblical God as yet, they find that in these communities, there are whole systems of, of laws, rules, that actually mimic much of what you find in the Ten Commandments. And so if you're stealing mangoes or sleeping with your neighbor's wife or whatever it might be, there are, there, are, there are rules that are written in the hearts. The first six terms, three pairs really, describe sinfulness in relation to God, and that's where it should start. Those who are lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinful, do you see those are, those are vertical expressions. It's really parallel to what you find in the first four of the Ten Commandments. If you ever noticed the, the, two, the two halves, if you will, the Ten Commandments, the first are about no other God, uh, make no image, uh, keep the Sabbath day, don't use the Lord's name in vain. These are, all, these are all ways of relating to God because, in fact, it's only as, and I know we've talked about that here many times, it's only as we are right in our relationship with God that we will be right horizontally in our relationship with people. And it's the second uh, the, next, the rest of the, the Ten Commandments that then are about those relational sins of adultery, murder, etc. So these commands are, are focused on our relationship with God. First of all, they're described as, not commands, but these description of sin, sinners, actually, the lawless. It's all about people here. The law, the law is for people who are, first of all, lawless. 
These are people who say, I am rejecting God's law, whether it's internal or biblical. I'm rejecting that. I, am my, I make my own rules. I live on my own terms. Sometimes you'll hear a phrase, even among Christians, saying, I know the Bible says this, but... That's a very dangerous half sentence. To realize that God's word says something and then to do something different. Hebrews 3.13 refers to the de- being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, if, if, if I do something repetitive enough, I can feel like it's right. Or if enough people say that it's okay, I can start to believe it's right. But it's, a, it's becoming a law unto ourselves. Second term, disobedient, it basically means insubordinate. It's a failure to recognize God's authority. If you, if you veterans can imagine a private defying a general's instructions, orders. This is, this is insubordination for us to defy the authority of God. Ungodly. In other words, if God's like this, I'm not like that. Sinners refers to missing the mark. If this is what God says, and I'm, I'm doing this. It's a directional thing. I'm going a different direction than God's word is guiding me. The word unholy, basically impure, probably referring to, to morally impure, whether it's, 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 it's lust or, or actions. The final term, profane or irreligious, probably having to do with false worship, false idols. We talked back in a few weeks ago about how there are so many things in our lives that while we don't, we don't worship or bow down to objects, things that have become gods in our life because that is our priority and everything else falls before this thing, this, this activity, this, this love we have outside of God. So sin is first of all against God's holiness vertically. And then sinners are described as those who violate other people in some way. And so some of these sins are uh, against people, as in hurting them. Others are sins with people, particularly the sexual sins are often committed with people, and of course damaging all who do them. Kill their father or mother. We might think that uh, murdering parents is almost unthinkable. But we see, for example, a growing... um, acceptance of assisted suicide, uh, euthanasia, understandably with medical technology end-of-life decisions become uh, much more complicated, but it, 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 it's one thing uh, to have, it, it's a different thing, uh, do not resuscitate or life support issues are different than injecting someone to, to cause death. Murders. There are 15 to 20,000 murders in the United States per year. That's a lot of unresolved anger, hatred that boils into actual violence against someone. And these 15 to 20,000 become actually murders. Add to that the murders of unborn babies, more or less than a million each year since the decision in 1973 of our Supreme Court to legalize abortion in America. We, we might long for laws to better reflect God's laws. We might long for times when they did, 
we might not get that. What we can do is honor life at all stages without any laws. Because we care for unborn babies and protect them because we uh, care for mothers in difficult pregnancies. Because we adopt and support adoption. Because we care about elderly dementia patients and our own parents in many cases. Because the Holy Spirit will guide us to greater godliness than even if we could fix the laws. And so that's what we are called to do. For adulterers and perverts, my translation says, the first term, adulterers, um, some of you have translated sexually immoral, which is probably a better way to render it because there is a specific word in the Greek language for adultery. It's not this one. This is the broader term for sexual immorality. But it's teaching very clearly that God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage between a man and a woman. And we would add genetically defined. Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation. It's pretty clear it's the application. The marriage bed is the only place for sexually pure intimacy. These are biblical absolutes, ignored by the unholy and the lawless at their peril. Unfortunately, the last 30 to 50 years, culture has turned on this, hasn't it? Because this was, in some broad sense, accepted earlier, but now it has become normalized, it has become good to express sexuality outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Um, it is saddest to me when Christians have gradually, through the deceitfulness of sin, been hardened to no longer understand the distinctions. So the first term, a sexual immorality, includes but does not limit to adultery, but basically here it's being used of any man and woman who are not married. Quite simple line, actually. Anything outside, that is, before marriage, during marriage, or after marriage, but it's outside of the marriage bond, the holy design of God for the family that preserves the, the joy and the purity of God's plan. Second term, different translations will, will say homosexual, perverts, sodomites, or maybe even something else. It's wrong because it's same-sex, but it's not only wrong because it's same-sex. It's wrong because it's anything outside of God's design for a man and woman in marriage. Certain persons might be more tempted or attracted to sexual sin homosexual or others heterosexual, but the problem is that it's sin because it's not within the holy boundaries and design and goodness of God, a marriage of a man and a woman. Obviously, this is politically and culturally incorrect, right? 
It's biblically correct. It's God's will. And it's unfortunate that many times Christians are considered unloving or even hateful towards certain persons because we proclaim the biblical standards of sexual morality. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Because God so loved the world with all of this stuff, all of this sin, all of us and all of our sinners, our, our sin. God so loved the world, he gave his son to die for all sin. And the posture of the church is likewise to love all that God loves and to hate all that God hates, loves sinners and hates sin. Again, we could long for laws that uphold these biblical values, but here's what we can do. Live with a pure heart because you'll be a light shining in a dark world. Live with purity internally in your thoughts and desires. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Say no to temptations in or outside of marriage. Walk in purity and don't face the heartache of sexual sin. Laws are for lawbreakers. Believers who walk in the Spirit don't need the law. Because the Holy Spirit leads us to self-control and purity and love for one another. These last three terms are, are really about, at least two of them are crimes, actually. Slave traders or kidnappers is the first term, then liars and uh, perjurers. The official buying and selling of slaves gratefully ended generations ago in American history, but there still is human trafficking. And we still live with the struggle over racial bias and prejudice, pretty obvious on our news feeds. Don't get wrapped up in the politics of racial issues. Check your heart. We don't need a law. We need God to transform our heart if something needs changing. Liars and perjurers, both referring to deception. Uh, I think the first one is kind of the classic lies that are deceit that we so naturally tell. Anything we shade from the truth to protect ourselves or our reputation. The second is, of course, intentional lying in court to harm someone. And then he says, whatever else, that's the, the etc. There's plenty he didn't list, isn't there? The greedy, the gossipers, the resenters, the arrogant, those with violent tempers, critical spirit, addiction to anything. The law kind of gets to you, doesn't it? It's a heavy weight. We see ourselves, we become conscious of sin, we begin to look deep into our soul and realize we're sinners. So law exposes our sin. But it shows us our deep longing and need for God's grace. If God has worked on your heart on anything we've talked about today, prepare to be amazed by God's amazing grace. 
Verse 11, which conforms, that is, this teaching about the law. This is interesting. It conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So God's law, which penetrates our hearts about sin, is no contradiction to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. In fact, this exposure of sin fits, conforms with the gospel. God's law, which exposes our sin, fits with God's grace, which forgives sin. But there's only one way it happens. It's the cross. Because the cross is the intersection between the justice of God and the grace of God. It's both. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, quotes the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Does the law bring the curse of God's condemnation? Absolutely. It exposes sin. It reaches into every corner of our hearts. We can say, I don't do that, but we know we do this. And so we, we, we are under the burden of the curse. And then we go to the cross and realize that Christ took the curse of the law for us. Because on the, on the cross, this is what, it uses the word glory, the glorious doctrine, the doctrine of the glory. That, 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 is the, that is the stupendously bright goodness of God. This is what, this is what happened on the cross. This is, what, this is why it's, the cross is lit up in the central, centerpiece of, of all the scripture is that on the cross, all the wrath of God, his justice was poured out as it must be. But not on us who deserve it poured out instead on his own perfect, sinless son. So that we could be free from the guilt, the condemnation, the punishment eternally of hell. So he says, this law, as you, as you, as you absorb the, the darkness of humanity personally, it actually conforms to the glorious grace and gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it displays his perfect plan of justice and love intersecting at the cross. And, and Paul ends that sentence with, which he entrusted to me. Just, it, just, it just leaks with privilege. The gospel privilege, this gospel, this good news of the glory of God that takes all the justice of God against sin and pours out his love on us, that, that's my message. That's what I get to do. That's what you get to do. That's, that's what we're here for. To display grace and communicate it to the people around us who need it. So that's the glory. It's glorious because now our status in heaven is cleared. 
it's glorious as we walk day by day. We don't need the law. We need the scriptures keeping us clear in our mind that the Holy Spirit can guide us. And it's interesting, the next passage, Paul goes on to say, you know, what I've been telling you about is not just, you know, you all, you all sinners. He says, I was this person. He talks about himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. He says, and I was shown grace. See, the glory of the gospel is that Paul no longer needed the law because the Spirit had transformed him from a, from a violent man to a, to a gentle man. That's the power. Pastor Nate mentioned in our worship package earlier about thinking of heaven and all the angels proclaiming the glory of God and all of us with them. To imagine hundreds of thousands of sinners in heaven. Sinners all over the place. Sinners with all kinds of sin. And us among them. But everyone redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. The price is paid, the price is paid. Forgiven. And that, he says, is the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Let's pray. Lord, we find ourselves deeply in need of your grace daily. I thank you for your grace that has come uh, individually at different times of each person's life in this room or online. I pray that we would live in light of grace, upholding your standards because the Holy Spirit within us is guiding us. I pray for anyone who has not yet personally embraced, trusted in the completely sufficient payment for sin of your dear son. Help us never to think that by law or rules or improvement of ourself we would become qualified for you, but help us to find ourselves humbly at the foot of the cross in need of only grace and all grace. And we praise you for the glory of that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.